Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a special programme on the brain and body. Perfect for the new year. And bringing together highlights on exercise, brain training and well-being from 2019. First, some good news to announce when it comes to delaying the onset of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, even in people who seem to be at increased risk because of the build-up of dementia-related substances in the brain called amyloid beta and tau. There is a drug you can take. It's called exercise. Jasmine Chatwal is a neurologist at Harvard Medical School in Boston. We know that from your late 20s and early 30s, you start to lose uh, brain tissue volume. The question is how much and where. And one of the neat things with this particular study was that we were able to look at how brain volumes changed on MRI over years. And by doing that, we could actually quantify, examine the, the protective effect of physical activity. And one other neat thing that came out of this was that the protective effects of physical activity were actually greater in people that had high amyloid burdens in the brains. A lot of people would call that preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So these are people that are most at risk. People who are at high risk have high amyloid burdens. What do they do? We don't have disease-modifying therapies. I think that physical activity is certainly one way, and we sort of looked also at cardiovascular risk and so that- how that fit in with physical activity. So just describe the study to us. We took about 180 people from a study called the Harvard Aging Brain Study, which is a longitudinal study of preclinical Alzheimer's disease and, and aging. We're following a group of people who are at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. And so doing we brain start scans with, on them as you go along. There's a very similar study going on here in Sydney. Yeah, the ABLE study. So these individuals now we've been following for somewhere between three and seven or eight years. And people had PET imaging at the beginning of the study to get a very precise idea of what their amyloid burdens were at baseline. And we could use that as a predictor of how people did over time. But we so, also so have to data. Explain, a PET scan is a, mm-hmm. a nuclear scan looking at the metabolism of the brain. Actually, PET scans are really versatile. So they can look at the metabolism, but you can also use a tracer, which binds to the amyloid protein in the brain. And you obviously took a lot of measures of these people's lifestyles and so on and looking at their exercise levels and Mm -hmm. followed them through. Were they all experiencing cognitive decline or only some? At the study entry, everyone is cognitively normal. People that have high uh, amyloid burdens, we know from other studies, are at particular risk of declining. And indeed, when we look at people's cognitive performance over time, it's the people with high amyloid burdens that tend to do worse over time. And just what was the relationship between exercise and how well they did? It was pretty profound, actually. So people that were more active, and I'll talk in a second about how active that was, were able to see quite a bit of protection so that they were looking, starting to look fairly similar to people that had normal amyloid burdens that didn't have elevated amyloid burdens. That was true both with respect to cognitive testing, but also with respect to brain volumes. You know, that's a very tangible measurement. Just to be clear here, their cognitive status, their ability to think and their memory and so on Mm -hmm. was protected. Did it reverse? It didn't reverse. So people showed very little decline over time in the higher activity portion of the high amyloid group. There was some decline over time, and that's to be expected with aging. Um, But it wasn't the drastic sort of decline that you sometimes see in the beginning of Alzheimer's disease. One of the issues in Alzheimer's disease is that it's often mixed with what's called vascular dementia. In other words, you've got atherosclerosis in the brain as well as the Alzheimer's. In fact, it may be causative, but that's for another interview. And people who exercise, they smoke less, they're probably way less, they eat better. How much of this was actually just good cardiovascular health? That's, That's a fantastic question. So we started actually looking at 
the cardiovascular risk factors. And they were really powerful predictors of decline, as you mentioned, and the data really bore that out. And so cardiovascular risk scores will correct for things like body weight, cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, a number of different risk factors. And when we were going into this physical activity study, when we started studying physical activity, I actually initially expected that those two things would overlap, building on the intuition that you just described, which was vascular risk factors themselves are reflective of lifestyle and having better vascular risk scores should be associated with having better levels of physical activity. And actually, you know, in these statistical models, because we can just know so much about these people, we can directly test that hypothesis. And somewhat surprisingly, actually, the two effects, meaning the effects of vascular risk and physical activity, were both present and they were independent. And actually, that's great because it suggests that for our patients who are at risk uh, and for people in the general population that are at risk, that means that there's two routes to go, the study suggests. One is by improving vascular risk and one is by promoting increased levels of physical activity. And these are actually fairly modest levels of physical activity that we're talking about here too. So So what was the dose of physical activity that got the effect? More is better regardless. We modeled it looking at the mean steps and saying, you know, one standard deviation above and below that. So that came out to 8,300 steps. So we used 8,300 steps as our illustration marker over the course of the paper. And you can see really nice protection with respect to cognitive decline and also with respect to change in brain volumes. So 8,300 um, steps was a kind of average activity of people who protected themselves. Is that what you're saying? Or that's a threshold for benefit? So I don't think there's a threshold. I think more is better regardless. But we just so we could depict the effect to people so that they could try to understand what a reasonable activity level was with respect to see a benefit. We saw a fairly major benefit at 8,300 steps, but more is always better. And what about Hmm? intensity? We don't know too much about intensity. These were just looking at steps. We do have other questionnaires from people looking at what kind of activity they did and things like that. And we don't think that these were very high intensity activities, but going forward, we're going to look much more carefully at things like people's heart rate and take more information in terms of their self-report in terms of what kind of activity they're doing. So here we were just looking at steps. So we have no reason to believe that these were very high intensity activities. Hopefully that's good for people who are looking to protect themselves because it means you don't have to run a marathon or a triathlon or whatever to see a protection that more is better and that even fairly modest levels have pretty substantial benefits potentially. I'm still not quite sure what's going on here. Are you just delaying the onset of dementia that the Alzheimer's processes keep on going but the actual dementia only emerges later? stopping in its tracks? What's happening? That's a good question. What we call Alzheimer's disease, especially late onset Alzheimer's disease, we know is profoundly multifactorial. There's a lot of different processes which take place that culminate in our having cognitive impairment. So the Alzheimer's disease process is one, so the amyloid and the tau pathology, but there's other important ones as well. And you can imagine that if you had multiple pathways that were all converging in the same way that if you had one pathway that you could really improve on really substantially or multiple pathways like vascular and physical activity, that even if the other one kept going, you might not see the emergence of cognitive decline. And I think that's my best guess as to what we're seeing here. So we're preserving some brain volume, cognitive activity, people are doing better over time. But I think the presumption is, is that the amyloid pathology is continuing. I will say that for vascular risk itself, we looked at the relationship between amyloid vascular risk and tau pathology, and there was a relationship there. So I think for physical activity, I don't think it's related to amyloid or tau. 
But I do think that vascular risk factors can promote tau pathology based on our earlier work. I think that the mechanisms of it, we can sit and work out, and they actually might be different in different people in terms of where the benefit comes from. But in terms of just looking at the levels of activity, people that had higher activity for the same amount of pathology in the brain did better over time. Thank you very much for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Jasmine Chatwal is a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is part of Harvard Medical School in Boston. And you're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. So that's exercise and dementia on an individual level. But the other challenge is how to prevent dementia on a mass scale. And what's the balance between training the brain and having a healthy body? One solution is to deliver an online program that protects against dementia because the reach of such an online program would be far greater than could be achieved face-to-face in a clinic or a gymnasium. A group led by researchers at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging in Sydney is working on just that. They say it's the world's largest internet-based trial to prevent cognitive decline. And Health Report's producer James Bullen has had a look. We know that about a third of the risk for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias are attributable to modifiable risk factors in the environment. Things like lifestyles, what you eat and how you use your brain, how you socialise and so forth. Professor Henry Bradardi is co-director of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales. And he's the lead investigator of the Maintain Your Brain trial, an ambitious attempt to develop an online program that helps prevent cognitive decline. We have 6,236 people randomised into two groups. Both groups will be getting information about their risk factors. There are up to four modules depending on their risk factor profile physical exercise or physical activity, nutrition, brain training, and depression or anxiety treatment. As we get older, our cognitive ability typically starts to worsen. That's a fact of life, and having cognitive decline doesn't mean you have dementia or will ever get dementia. But the two are linked, and many of us have lifestyle factors we can tweak to influence our risk. In fact, over 90% of people were eligible to do at least one or two modules. And the nutrition module, astounding 98% of people were eligible for that. That eligibility was based on an assessment of a person's individual risk factors, like how fit they were or how well they ate. And there is some evidence that these multimodal interventions, programs that target multiple different lifestyle factors, can help to protect the brain. This is in people who don't have dementia at the start of a study. That's the group the Maintain Your Brain research is looking at. The landmark research study was from Finland, looking at exercise, brain training, and attention particularly to cardiovascular risk factors. And they showed over two years actually an improvement in cognition in several domains in the intervention group versus the control group. One of the modules that people complete in Maintain Your Brain is brain training. Repetitive cognitive tasks where there's an inherent challenge or problem there and you're doing it over and over again to build up the underlying skills the task is targeting. The brain training module is led by Professor Michael Valenzuela at the University of Sydney. So it's very much analogous to physical activity versus physical exercise. So when you go to the gym and do exercise, you're doing repetitive movements with your muscles. In the brain training context, you're doing repetitive exercises for your brain. It's been a hot area of research over the last five years. There's now more than 50 clinical trials. So from that body of evidence, we now understand that When brain training is done rigorously or properly, 
that there is a benefit to general cognition and more specifically to certain types of cognitive abilities more than others. Part of what makes a brain training program rigorous is when it works multiple functions of the brain, things like visual, verbal and working memory. If we want to improve fitness, if you only had barbells and you're only exercising your biceps, it's not likely to improve your overall physical fitness. Another aspect of what makes a brain training program rigorous is supervision. If you'd never been in the gym before and I just gave you the pass and said go in there and get fitter, you might not succeed. The same applies to brain training, that if we leave it to individuals just to do whatever they like or to devise their own program, it doesn't seem to be effective. But when it's structured and led by a brain coach, then it is effective and that's been shown in over 50 clinical trials. Our workaround is we do have real human trainers, a whole team of them, who we deploy to the people we think need it the most. So in our technology, there's a lot of algorithms there to try and detect when people are struggling with an exercise or a period of exercise. And that's when they get red flagged on our system and that's where our trainers make contact on a variety of platforms, either over the phone or through messaging and so forth. The exercise, nutrition and depression modules of Maintain Your Brain also provide online supervision. And the hope is that preserving cognitive ability translates to better function in daily life. That's difficult to show in scientific research, though. From a technical point of view, it's very challenging to demonstrate because those type of measures and and ways of quantifying daily function are very coarse. So you really need to either be dropping massive levels of functionality to see a decline or being improving by a really large amount in order to be able to detect it. So it's a difficult thing to get evidence for, but in some very large studies there is now some evidence that this type of training can generalise to that high level. But I think we still need more data to really confirm that. Dr Alex Baha-Fuchs researches brain training and dementia at the University of Melbourne. He isn't involved in the Maintain Your Brain trial. We have pretty conclusive evidence that some training does work in this regard. However, this does not necessarily mean that people who train under this kind of approach will necessarily show lower rates of decline in the future because most of these studies tend to focus on the short to medium term. It's very, very difficult and there are very, very few studies that have been both large in terms of the number of participants and uh, followed people for long enough. It's also not clear how brain training stacks up against the other risk factors Maintain Your Brain is trying to tweak. Exercise, nutrition and depression. At the level of the individual, it's difficult to predict which approach or combination of approaches is likely to have the best benefit. So that's why we generally recommend to engage in as many of these brain resilience type of activities as possible in combination. Having said that, I think the evidence for cognitive training and its impact on cognition is stronger, for example, than the evidence for physical activity or nutrition. The trial won't report full results for a few more years. It's ongoing and we don't know whether it's going to work or not. It's also important to say that reducing risk isn't the same as eliminating it. Lifestyle's just one factor that contributes to whether someone may get dementia or not. You can do all the right things and still develop the condition. But if the program does work... If the trial behaves like other research in in the field, 
then we would expect those people that have been undergoing our training modules to have at least maintained their cognitive skills over the three-year period. And those that don't, we may see a level of decline. So that, that's our hypothesis and our forecast. We're very hopeful that we can show that there is a benefit from this. We'll then be able to then roll it out at a national level, international level. Professor Henry Brodati, who's Director of the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales, ending that report from James Bullen. If that's not enough motivation to get moving, a study conducted a few months ago of more than 1,000 people followed from birth in Dunedin, New Zealand, has looked at them at age 45 to see whether how fast they walk can predict how well or badly they're ageing. In other words, their biological versus their chronological age. And the researchers have compared their findings with what these 45-year-olds were like when they were aged three. The technical term for this walking measure is gait speed, but there may have been an even simpler indicator. Dr. Lena Rasmussen was the lead researcher. Gait speed has been used as measure of functional capacity, but mainly in older patients and in older, healthy elderly people, but not as much in middle age and not really in young people at all. So in older people, you, so, get, you get people to walk down the corridor and see how far they can walk in six minutes, something like that, isn't it? It's worth a six minute walk? It's actually just like a four or six meter test. So it's more just, can you even get out of the hospital bed? Can you get up and walk? And will you need assistance while walking? And then over a very short distance, for six meter, you can see what is the gait speed in that distance. And that's very closely related to the underlying functional capacity and the health status of a person. People who are walking slower when they are older, they have a higher risk of developing age-related diseases such as cardiovascular disease or dementia. And there's also a link between slower gait speed and even mortality. There hasn't been much work done into gait speed, how quickly you walk, but it's a bit more sophisticated than that earlier in life. And you've been using a New Zealand study called the Dunedin study, which has been following a group of people from early childhood through to what's now adulthood. We learned a lot about childhood behaviour, ADHD and various other things in the Dunedin study. But now you're looking at them at 45 and comparing to age three, and you've looked at gait speed. But it wasn't just gait speed. It was things like dual task gait. Tell me what the tests were you did on the 45-year-olds. We measured gait speed in three different ways. First, we asked them to walk just at their normal pace, and then they were asked to do a dual task, gait speed task, as you said, which means that they had to do a small task while they were walking, and this was that they had to recite alternating letters of the alphabet while they were walking. It wasn't juggling while they were walking, it was... Not juggling, right, it right. was a cognitive task, yeah. Right. And then the final way we measured it was to measure the maximum gait speed, so how fast they could walk without running. And then we've made an average across these three measures of gait speed. And what were you measuring it against? A wide range of associations, mainly indicators of aging and physical and physiological function, like muscle strength in your hands and your legs, how many rises and sits you can do from a chair in 30 seconds, how many steps you can do in two minutes. And then we've looked at brain scans. We've imaged with MRI the brains of all the study members and saw that those who were walking slower, they had different signs in their brains that are telling us that these brains and these people are aging faster. For instance, they had smaller brain volumes, their cortical thickness had decreased, and the surface areas of the brains had also decreased. And so, then moreover, on the brain scans, we could see that they had these white matter hyperintensities that are usually appearing with age. So in a sense, you measured their biological age through a different series of parameters. And what you're saying is that at age 45... 
that was their chronological age, but their biological age was a lot older. So for those who were slowest on average with their gait, how many years added on to their chronological age were they? We used this 19 biomarker measure of physiological function where we measured things like cholesterol and blood pressure and a lot of other things. When we compared the slowest walkers and the fastest walkers, there was actually almost five years difference between the slowest and the fastest walkers in the study. Walking is such a simple thing, but it's dependent on the underlying function of many different organs at the same time. So you need your brain, your heart, your lungs, your muscles, your bones, nervous system, vision, and so on, all working together for just doing the simple task of walking. And that's why we can capture this association between aging and gait speed. And you also rated their facial age. In other words, did they look old? What did that show? That also showed that those who were walking more slowly in the study, they also had faces that looked older. When they were three, what were they like? At age three, they went through some cognitive testing and neurological testing. And we found that those who had better brain health at age three and better cognitive function, they turned out to be the faster walkers at age 45. Those with slower walking speed at age 45, they had had worse cognitive function already at age three. So you're saying that their destiny was set at age three? We hope not. Why this link is there, we don't really know. It could be that those with poor neurocognitive function in childhood has worse health behaviors throughout their lives, or it could even be that there could be something more predestined. We don't know. And what about things like social class, education, smoking, and those sorts of factors? Do they congregate in people with slower gait? There's definitely a link between worse lifestyles like smoking and poor diet, low physical activity. But in this study, we've corrected for the childhood family social class. So it's not explaining everything here. So here's <laughs> the temptation is always to simplify complex things and usually you're wrong. But however, the way you tested gates reasonably complicated, but they can look in the mirror. If you're looking old at the age 45, should you just get on your bike and get going on a high-intensity prevention program? I definitely don't think that would hurt if you look older and have signs of aging compared to your chronologically aged peers. Then I think living a healthy life wouldn't hurt at all. It would actually probably benefit you in many ways. Dr. Lena Rasmussen is a researcher at Duke University in North Carolina and Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. For years, we've heard about the benefits of incidental activity, a walk to the shop or taking the stairs. But what if you could transfer the principles of high-intensity interval training, those are short spurts of intense exercise that get the blood pumping, to this incidental movement we do every day? Researchers are suggesting you can pack a workout into just a couple of minutes a week. Too good to be true? Well, health reporter James Bullen tried to find out. Level 4, going up. It's 8.33am, I've just arrived at work, and I'm taking the elevator up to Radio National. This is part of my daily routine, but I've noticed some colleagues have a more peculiar and punishing route to Level 4. Rather than the lift, they trudge up 8 flights of stairs, then another 8 to get down for lunch, another 8 after lunch, and another eight to leave the building. They do get a bit of a huff and a puff on, but how much good does it really do? Incidental physical activity is whatever we do for day-to-day -day living that is not done specifically for the purpose of exercise, fun, 
or health. Emmanuel Stamatakis is Professor of Physical Activity, Lifestyle and Population Health at the University of Sydney. So incidental physical activity is we walked from the lift to my office, you walking to the bus stop or the train stop. If you had to carry your heavy shopping from the supermarket to the boot of your car. You might get all the exercise you need playing sport or going to the gym. But if you haven't exercised in a long time, if you're overweight or obese, or if you're very time poor, these exercise snacks could be appealing. This is the beauty of it. Zero time commitment. It is not necessary to make the time to walk up the stairs instead of the lift. The chances are that you could have walked up the stairs quicker when you came to see me. And we've heard about the benefits of incidental activity before. The catch here is that you can't just go for an ordinary stroll in the park. Researchers would usually categorise that as moderate physical activity. But high-intensity incidental activity, like sets of stair climbs, is tougher. Vigorous physical activity, vigorous aerobic physical activity, is when... You get to a point, you're so much out of breath that you find it hard to speak or you can only speak in short phrases. On the other hand, moderate intense physical activity, you should be getting slightly out of breath. You can talk, but you cannot sing. Professor Stamatakis is the author of an editorial in the British Journal of Sports Medicine talking about the potential benefits of this type of exercise. The evidence is very encouraging. It's small in volume, very small in volume. There's an opportunity here for us researchers to shift our physical activity paradigm here and stop thinking about amounts only. Amounts of physical activity are important. There is no question about that. But it looks like that it is not only about the total amount of physical activity. The quality of physical activity, in particular, regular sessions of high-intensity physical activity, no matter how brief they are, they seem to be very, very promising. In one small Canadian trial, researchers saw an improvement in the cardiorespiratory fitness of a group who performed sets of stair climbs after just six weeks, compared to a control group of people who did nothing at all. The evidence from these trials is very, very encouraging because we can see that among groups of very young adults between 19 and 22, six weeks of a protocol of stair climbing that consists of three climbs per day, four hours apart, and every climb is only three flights of stairs. Every climb is 20 to 22 seconds. Total daily dose, one minute of exercise per day, three days per week, over six weeks, we can see measurable increases in cardiorespiratory fitness. Now, if we were to repeat this kind of trial, in a sample of middle-aged, sedentary, or older adults, unfit people, basically, who have been exposed to a sedentary lifestyle and physical inactivity for decades and decades, I expect we would see a lot more dramatic results. And higher levels of cardiovascular fitness are associated with lower risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and stroke. Professor Stamatakis emphasises this field of research is still very young. But if high-intensity incidental activity works, how much do you need? The majority of the population, especially if we consider the middle-aged and older population, they're very physically inactive. They're typically people who don't even do 
half an hour or 20 minutes of moderate intensity activity every day. They do much less. For those people, who I will emphasize once more, is the majority in our population, three or four sessions of high-intensity incidental physical activity, even if it's as short as 20, 30, 60 seconds, three to four times per day, I am confident can have dramatic consequences, positive consequences on the fitness level. So there you are. Step it up, skip the lift when you can. Now, just four more flights of stairs to go. James Bullen with that story. And that's it for this week's Health Report, which was a collection of our highlights from 2019. I'm Norman Swan. See you next time.